It's two more. Yep. Yep. Keep going. I'm, I'm, I'm rejoicing and robed. That's right. That was, those were the six expressions of the, the, the God's, the righteous responses of reconciliation from God. I love it. I love it. Love it. I'm glad that's some good memory going on there. All right. And uh, just in terms of like message titles aren't nearly as important. But for those of you that didn't get a chance to be here am my own, I've got green lights. Uh, for those of you who didn't get a chance to be here, here's where we've been so far. Uh, we talked first and foremost about the prodigal son. That was a two part message. Uh, those are some of the reflections from that that you hear people uh, sharing. Um, then we talked about the uh, perfect storm. I think that's what we went next, uh, which you already heard some reflections from that. Then we went to the paralyzed sinner. Um, and then uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the pitiful stranger, the pitiful stranger, which is really just kind of a, an alliterated play on the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and then, of course, the message that I will not be able to make it to uh, is the pious soldier, the pious soldier. So maybe one day I'll get invited back and I'll start there. All right. So, um, well, hey, with all that, I just want to thank you. Um, guys, for allowing me to come and share. Um, it is uh, a great and incredible blessing to me uh, just to be able to open God's word every single time. It is a great honor. Uh, and it is also a great honor just to visit again in spaces um, like these where hospitality uh, runs deep. Um, I get to live in people's homes and be written around in their cars and talk about their families and catch up. I really do enjoy that. And I think I said this three years ago, but do not ever think lowly of what you have here. Um, you know, I, I come from a cool church, you know, one that has, you know, like, I mean, like, you know, we've got the, you know, the super cool equipment and the special lights and, you know, the these, you know, like really new, like our our, our podium looks like something off the, you know, you know, Star Trek, you know, Enterprise. Not No, not even Enterprise. What's the newest ship? like Star Trek, whatever, evangelize, um, right? Um, you know what I mean? We have all of this new and cool stuff, uh, and, and I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm part of it I'm very much, but uh, this, this, is, this is just as much the body of Christ. This is just as authentic as an expression, and it's just as beautiful and as genuine of expression. And, you know, our, our church's um, vision is we want to be, be a place that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. And what we mean by that display is that when people would come into our church, they would see all these different types of people um, ethnically and generationally. And that their hearts will be blessed and, and drawn into this great curiosity of who could possibly draw together all these different types of people. Well, I also believe that one of the uh, very redemptive displays of God's reconciling hope is uh, churches like this, that well, we look and we move radically differently, uh, but we are very much part of this grand tapestry that God uses to glorify um, himself. And so, again, uh, do uh, do take great joy in what the God, what God is doing among you. Um, it is, uh, again, it just does my heart well to be here every single time. I love it. Um, and so, um, again, if you want to have me back monthly, I'm okay with that. Um, it, it really is. It is okay. I mean, my schedule is open. Uh, that's one of the beauties of having multiple guys who, who preach. Um, so, again, um, shameless plug to be invited back uh, with greater frequency than three years. <laughs> okay, sounds good, sounds good. 
And I, any, anytime I make an appeal like that, I always like to just pause and just create a nice awkward silence because it just gives a nice tension. Like I don't mind being invited back more frequently. You see how that works? Try that next time you have a request and you just want to let it lay out there. Don't rush. Don't rush past it. Just let it do that. All right. Well, um, let's let's hand our time over to the Lord. And uh, he's got some fun for us, too. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, um, you've heard our praises. And I believe in the promises of Scripture that you attend and you occupy the praises of your people. I believe your word when it says that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there in the midst. I believe your word, uh, Lord God, that that you do not dwell in temples made with men's hands, but now you you occupy these spaces uh, where your people are gathered. I believe those words of God and uh, and I believe that you're here and I believe you desire to be here. And I um, I believe that uh, your son, Jesus, sent the Holy Spirit so that our experience with you would in no way be a decline from what we saw from our, 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 our family from the first century. Um, and I believe uh, what you said through um, your servant, Paul, that he came in amongst the folks there at Corinth and claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, except, you know, considering the fact that he knew an incredible amount more than that, but the fact that he would narrow his focus on the simplicity and just the compressed power of that message so that their faith would not rest in the the wisdom of men's words or in skillful speech, um, but that uh, their faith might rest uh, in your unique power. And uh, that there will be a demonstration of your Holy Spirit. Lord God, would you let there be a demonstration of your Holy Spirit today that would further emphasize um, the power of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, the strength of your word, the glory of the church, and Lord God, the richness and the rightness of worshiping you, the one true and living God. Would you inventory the room and as you find and and uh, Lord God, uh, where each one of our hearts are, would you just deliver mail from today's message that is so specific to each one of our addresses that we could not deny that we had been in your presence? Um, Would you, um, Lord God, take us through a story that uh, uh, many of us may be familiar with and drive home new emphasis on old ideas and peel back new layers of things we may have never seen before that uh, would leave us further equipped and you glorified. Um, and this we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, as we look at what you would commonly know as a story or the parable of the Good Samaritan, And what I will refer to as a story of the pitiful stranger, the pitiful stranger. You'll understand why I have titled it uh, as that in just a few moments. Um, As has been or has been our tradition uh, throughout our time together, I love to kind of spend some time anchoring down on where this story fits within the grand narrative of the book. Now, we know that the central theme of the book of Luke is that Jesus wants to display or to demonstrate that he has come to seek and save that which is lost. 
And uh, in that desire, Jesus tells a series of stories and parables in different environment. And uh, these stories are never random or arbitrary. They are always given to us to answer very specific questions or to scratch very certain theological itches. And in this particular parable is given to us because someone approached Jesus, a lawyer in particular, not to be confused with a constitutional lawyer like what we would know in this country, but a lawyer, a person who was very skilled and adept in his understanding of uh, the Mosaic law. The person who would have understood the commandments, which is the first 10, and then the ceremonial law and also the case laws, that full body of 600 plus laws that make up the fabric of the Old Testament that not only told people how to live morally and righteously and religiously, but also framed how they were supposed to move in daily life with one another. If you backed your pickup truck over my goat, how are we supposed to handle uh, remunerations and compensation? Or how you're supposed to move if you're going toward the temple and how you're supposed to interact with God. So ceremonial law, case laws, as well as the commandments. This is a lawyer, a person who is skilled, who has made his life and profession in learning these things. And here he is approaching Jesus about what it means to be saved. You ready? So he says in um, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up. And put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And oh, and you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. This is a well-studied man. He's been listening and memorizing messages. He's heard this before. He's got it. He's a student of the whole law and he's already knows what Jesus has said in other places. What are the two great commandments, right? That the whole law hangs on these things. He's already heard that. He knows how to pass the theological bar exam. He's a good lawyer. He knows that the two great commandments are these, right? So he gives this great concise answer, which shows that he's a good student. And then he says, Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Bible says in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied this way, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and uh, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and they departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he had passed by on the other side and and then he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, he saw him and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine and set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he uh, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. And which of these three, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. 
So the pitiful stranger in this story today, I want you to be on the lookout for just a handful of things, but two big things so you you don't get lost. Um, I believe that the Lord, first and foremost, his first order of business is to point out and address our self-righteousness. He's going to deal with self-righteousness in the man here on the page. He's going to deal with our self-righteousness, too, because all of us, just like we're all on the prodigal spectrum, we are also somewhere on the self-righteous spectrum, including me. There are some things about me that I feel like I have passed the theological bar exam and I feel like I've got it right. I know the answers to the test, but the t- oh, knowing the answers to the test isn't really passing the real test. It's whether or not I'm actually following through or as the old passage would put it, we are called to not only be hearers of the word, but also doers. We're not just to be passers of the theological bar exam, but to be people who follow through in actually loving our neighbor and not just being experts at knowing the text. This is a risk point for even and especially me. And so I'm just inviting you into a little bit of a reflection of my own time with the Lord. And if you can get in on a few convictions, you can have them. So I just I'm just doing it to not let me allow you to feel or I don't want you to feel unduly judged. All right. So when we talk about how the Lord wants to address our or my self-righteousness in this particular text, I also want you to be on the lookout for this, that in every glimpse or in every picture of self-righteousness that we're going to see, I also hope you will see a picture of the Savior's righteousness. In every picture, every picture of self-righteousness that the text is going to point out, I want us to also take note of a portrait or a preview of the Savior's righteousness, which is what we really need. And so let's begin to do some of our work. When we look here at verse 30, Jesus begins to tell the story and he says, and Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, uh, you know, I don't like to waste words when I see them in the Bible. Why a certain man? Now, of everyone in the passage, uh, it's only the guy who's laying down uh, 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 beaten, bruised and robbed who we know very little about other than his condition. He's the pitiful stranger. But notice how everyone else in the passage has a clear both ethnic and professional or either occupational identity. I mean, even down to the innkeeper, we at least know that there's a guy who keeps an inn somewhere down between uh, Jerusalem and Jericho. We know that there's priests that traverse that route. And we know you can't be a priest uh, unless you are a part of the stock of Israel. And particularly you had to come from uh, the Levites. We know that there's Levites involved in the story, and we know that that's a specific, you know, group of folks uh, included within Israel. That's a certain tribe. We also know that somebody here is a lawyer and he couldn't be an expert in the laws of Israel unless he was at least of the stock of Israel. So we know something about him occupationally and also ethnically. But we know nothing about the man who's laying on the ground. He's a pitiful stranger. We even know that there's a Samaritan in the text, but 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 the but the person who needs the most help, we don't know who they are. I think that anonymity is a part of the genius of the Holy Spirit, because I believe that what the Lord is going to call us to is to is to 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 to, rather than looking for 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 names and labels to be able to look at people's conditions and that our hearts will be moved toward them with compassion to see souls and to see their deep need for God rather than trying to look for people who look like me or that live like me or that are aligned with me in any special way. 
So when we look at this passage, I believe that um, one of the first things that the Lord is doing through the anonymity of this stranger is this, is that he's helping us to know, he's helping me to know that self-righteousness is rooted in failing to remember who we were without the Lord's help. Remember, everybody in here has a clear ethnic and occupational identity. The Israelites know who they are. As a matter of fact, they used to pride themselves on this when Jesus would come and talk about them being in bondage. And they said, we've never been in bondage to any man. We are Abraham's children. We know who we are. I mean, this is an extremely proud people. But, 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 but self-righteousness is rooted in failing to remember who we were without the Lord's help. What Israel has forgotten is that even though they were not in the grace dispensation, they were still beneficiaries from the grace of God because the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and that Abraham was actually an idol worshiper and God came to him. Abraham didn't negotiate with God. That Israel themselves, the whole fact that they have this unique distinction of being God's people, he chose them graciously and they seem to have forgotten that. That they were globally the pitiful strangers, this nomadic people who had no prize, who had no stake and claim, who who they weren't running the world's table. Egypt was. They've never run the world's table. Assyria did. Rome has. They've forgotten who they are without the grace of God. And that's what all self-righteousness does. It is rooted in a failure to remember who we are without the Lord's help. There are two books in the Bible that are juxtaposed to one another that you would do well to read and read them on a continuum. The book of Joshua and the book of Judges. This is the same nation of people who have great success in God and great cyclical downward spirals and failures. Do you know what the difference between the Joshua and the Judges generation is? There's a singular verse that hinges the two books together that says there came a generation who did not remember the great things that God had done among them. And it was a cyclical decline because there came up a generation who didn't remember God's good work. Self-righteousness is always rooted in failing to remember who we were without the Lord's help. Coming back to our main text here, you have a man who is stripped, wounded and left for dead. I hope that rings some bells for you because that's what every believer looks like separate from the help of a shepherd. Separate from the good shepherd, we are stripped, wounded and left for dead. What do I mean? Remember what Jesus said uh, in John chapter 10, verse 10, that Satan's agenda, he's not a good shepherd. He said that the the Satan's agenda is to come in and to steal, to kill and to destroy, to leave the believer stripped, wounded and left for dead. That is his agenda. And that's what we all look like, sans the protection of a great shepherd. Think about the words from the 23rd Psalm when the psalmist says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I walk in some dark, really dingy and dangerous places, but I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, here's the deal. That's the landscape of the journey between Jerusalem and Jericho. You see, it was notorious and historically understood, regularly printed in the Jerusalem Times, that people who traversed the roadways, the dark, hazardous roadways from Jerusalem to Jericho were regularly getting robbed. I mean, it was a regular occurrence. It was really popular. There was no imagination required by the lawyer when Jesus talks about people going down this road and getting robbed. It was a common and real occurrence that that was a dangerous place. God's people, all people are regularly walking in dangerous places. And the difference maker is the protection of a good shepherd. 
So what we see is that the stripped, wounded and left for dead man is not just this nameless, pitiful stranger. It is our original state apart from the intercepting love of a good shepherd and savior. This is who we are. The man who lays here beaten, wounded and left for dead. But what I also think is beautiful about this is that the Bible tells us that this would also be the condition of our savior. You see, the Bible tells us in other places that it is the Christ himself who became sin for us, who who he himself on the cross was stripped. He on the cross is is there. He is wounded. He on the cross is left for dead. He walks in our very shoes. He bears this very shame. So so the so the same savior who's pointing out this pitiful stranger, he actually wears the shoes of the pitiful stranger himself because that was also our case and our condition. Do you see now how these glimpses of self-righteousness actually give us a preview of Christ's righteousness and how desperately we need him? So as the lawyer sees himself, he may be as a first. I think all of us can move here and see ourselves as a priest, as a Levite. And we can also see ourselves as a pitiful stranger. Just kind of turn. You just got to kind of turn the text a little bit and we can see ourselves in all of these conditions if we give it a fair reading. But let's look at verses 31 and 32. Now, by chance. A certain priest came down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at this place, he came and looked and he passed by on the other side. Why would they pass by? Well, If they're familiar with the road, they probably wanted to scoot by as quickly as possible. Maybe they felt like the the guy laying on the road was some sort of prop. And as moment as you come over and try to check him out, these other guys come diving out of the woods and club you over the head and take your stuff. Who knows what they thought? But they were definitely involved in their own maintaining their own self-interest. They even moved over to the other side, which is so interesting. They didn't even want to walk close to the person. So they wanted to minimize the amount or maximize the amount of distance. So they even couldn't look on his pity. They didn't want to be moved with any compassion. But what I find to be notable is that the scriptures want us to know that it was a priest and a Levite. Why is that important? Well, now, who's the story being told to first? A lawyer, a man who is adept in the knowledge of the law. Jesus is raising the ante, creating additional tension in the way he tells the story. And here's how he's doing it. Now, you might be a scribe or a lawyer skilled in the academics of the law. But here comes a priest, a man who not only is skilled in the particulars of the law, but his professional training is to attend to the Lord's presence. He makes his living administering daily to the Lord. He he is an expert in the practice principles of worship in the in the in the furniture of religion. He can name at infinitum what all of the the tables and the furnishings of the temple and the curtains and the, the various rods. And he knows all of their dimensions. He 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 lives in close proximity with the very place where the almighty God comes down and receives sacrifices. He administers in the presence of God 
on behalf of the entire nation. That's what this man does for a living. He not only knows the law, but he lives and hangs out in the holy place. In other words, he's a man who attends to the presence of the Lord, but he is not attentive to the presence. Man, how can you hang out that close with God and God not be hanging out so close with you? That you that you you very much want to love him with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. But man, it hadn't trickled down to loving any of your neighbors. How does this happen? How does one swim and get so saturated in religion that you could possibly you're hanging out with God, the very God. It's a spirit field. If anybody had a spirit field church is the one that the priest went to. (laughs) That's a theological joke and it's okay to laugh. But then look at look, look at the Levite. The Levites is, is the pretty much the pipeline where all priests came out of. You can't get the priest job without first being born a Levite and you have no control over how you get born, which means being born a Levite means you're born into a very privileged position. You are defenders of the temple. You are carriers of the covenant. But here you are not even carrying out the covenant, though you are carriers of the covenant. What? A contrast of lives. Here it is. These are the people responsible that as the people of God in the book of Joshua would move across the Jordan and go to the very city of Jericho. They'd be responsible for carrying. They'd carry the Ark of the Covenant, which would include the very tablets that have the principles that they're supposed to be keeping. These people are carriers of the covenant, but yet they cannot carry out the tenets of the covenant. What a contrast. How can you be that close to the, not just the Bible, you're close to the stone tablets. But yet they haven't yet taken hold. How does this happen? I'll tell you how. While self-righteousness is rooted in the failure to remember who we are without the Lord's help, self-righteousness is also can be traced to a failure to remember God's grace. These are people who can remember the letters. But not remember the grace. Not remember that this is a gift to you. In other words, if you were a Levite, if you know the law, you were graciously born into this, not because of anything you brought to the table. Verses 33 through 35. Aren't you amazed at how quickly this is moving? But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came Where he was now, listen at the contrast, a certain Samaritan came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion and he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he set him on his own animal and brought him into an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he departed. He left some denarii. He gave it to the innkeeper and he said, take him. Uh, Man, this is so much here. I'm going to unpack in just a moment. I won't even I'm not going to reread it. I'm just going to walk through it. But I think the big idea here is that self-righteousness substitutes theological heritage for practical holiness. Self-righteousness substitutes theological heritage for practical holiness. What do I mean? The one person that's going to pull over to the roadside and see this guy who's got a flat tire is technically and actually a theological mongrel. He's a Samaritan. He's a person whose theology ain't right. The other three guys, the person who's actually receiving this story and the two previous people who passed by this guy, their theology is airtight. 
I mean, they are summa cum laude graduates from the top seminary in town. And the Samaritan has a incomplete Bible certificate from a Pentecostal church in the Philippines. But yet, but yet, the Bible tells us one, two, three, four, five, six C's. <laughs> All right, James. That mark how this theological heritage that has become a practical substitute for holiness really doesn't amount to a hill of beans if we're not following through practically on loving people. And here's what it looks like when this certain Samaritan journeyed. Look at what the Bible says. It says, and he came to where he was and he saw him and he had compassion. And so he went to him and he bandaged him. I think one of the first pillars of true follow through and what God called us to do is the ability to see people as they are. That's what that's the prelude to compassion. It is to see people as they are and to meet them where they are. Notice that the two previous characters, when they saw him, they went to the other side. They didn't want to be close to that, that distress and that struggle. But it says that the Samaritan, when he saw him, he went over to him and he didn't just say, be healed and be filled. I hope that you find your clothes when you wake up. It says that he he got over there and he bandaged his room. So he used his own supplies to help the man. So compassion, think about this. Compassion begins when we see people as they are and we meet them where they are. This is exactly what Jesus does in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Again, he sees us in our current state and he comes to us where we are and finds us as we are. He recognizes that we are full-blown, filthy rag sinners bringing nothing into this world and taking nothing out. And he comes to us. He sees us as we are and ministers to us where we are in our current condition. And he does so at his own peril, just like the good Samaritan. Certainly the Samaritan knows that there are robbers in this place. And if he doesn't know, certainly he knows that this man didn't abuse himself. So he knows that by stopping and checking on him, that he's likely putting his own life at risk. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us in his compassion. He saw us as we were. And he didn't say, get up, sinners. Try to come up to heaven. No, the father sent the son into our peril and he came and he bandaged our wounds. He came to us. He is the typification of compassion. The Bible says that he not only had compassion, but he cared for his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. I can't help but think even more so about the 23rd Psalm when it says that the good shepherd, what he would do, he'd put, put oil on the head of the sheep to soothe it when it had been in prickly prices. This is a part of the good shepherd's work. So Jesus not only has compassion for us, but he also cares for us. But not only does he do that, according to the scriptures, the good Samaritan says, then he picked the man up and he put him on his own animal. I don't know how big a donkey or a mule the man was riding on, but, you know, 
I'm, I'm assuming that maybe he got up and walked alongside and let this guy be let him be draped across the animal. But he picked him up. He carried his burden and then gave up his own strength in order that it would become the strength of that man. Or as Paul would put it in my weakness, he realizes the Lord's strength. And here it is. We see it. The good Samaritan of all people typifying that. So the son comes and gives us compassion because he sees us where we are and he meets us where we are. The son shows us he cares for us by caring for our wounds. It is by his stripes that we are healed. Uh, He carries us. In other words, we Jesus carries our burdens and we're able to throw them fully on him. Our full weight uh, is placed on the back of the son and he carries it as we see happening here. But man, something else pretty powerful happens. After the Samaritan who brought him, the Samaritan bandages him up. He doesn't leave him on the ground. He puts him on his own animal. And it says in the next day when he departed, excuse me. So then he, he takes him to an inn and he, it says, and he took care of him. So he, he, he does an immediate, you know, kind of medical type of thing. And then he kind of medevacs him, you know, um, you know, whatever it puts him on his animal, takes him to an inn. And it says he took care of him there. He didn't drop him off at the front desk and be like, Hey, I got some business dealings. No, no, no. He he gets a room. He puts him in there. So he does what? He has compassion. He cares. He carried his burdens, but then he completes what he started. This is exactly what the Bible says that the Lord will do. I am convinced or confident in this one thing in Philippians chapter one, verse six, that the Lord will complete what he started. But then not only does he do that, look at this. Yet another C. I already gave you some of the answers. He turns to the innkeeper, gives him some denarii after a couple of days or after on the next day. And he makes this deposit. Now, follow me carefully. You know where I'm going. I hope you see it already. He makes this deposit at the front desk and he says, hey, now he's making he, he leaves enough to not. He, he leaves the innkeeper in charge of caring for the man and he leaves behind a little deposit for him to do so. And he says, and then I'm going to come back and I'll repay whatever, uh, whatever compensation you need. What we see here is that he not only uh, uh, has compassion or he cares and he carried, but he completes, but then he compensates the innkeeper and gives him a promise of his own return. In Ephesians chapter one, verse 14, the Bible tells us that as a part of God's plan, that he makes this initial deposit of the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit is a promise of his return to come back and finish the entirety of our salvation and our wholeness. And guess what else he's going to do when he comes back? He's not only going to complete the work that he made this initial compensatory deposit on, but it also says that when he comes, he's also going to repay every man for both his good and even his evil deeds. And so what we have in the Samaritan man is a full picture of the of Jesus's ministry from compassion to care to to completion to compensation or the supply of the Holy Spirit to his coming again. And all of this within the cameo of the Good Samaritan. Now, I don't know how that lands with you, because these are just names for us as Western readers. But to say that a Samaritan The theological mongrel is the one who typifies the attitude of Christ, the full fulfillment of the law and gives us a preview of the perfect one and his great work in our lives. If I was a lawyer, I would be so insulted right now. 
How dare you give such a high assignment to a Samaritan? I love how Jesus is able to not kill two birds with one stone. He kills all birds with one stone. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> love it. I mean, hypocrisy, self-righteousness, you know, theological elitism, ethnic prejudice. I mean, just pap, 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 just birds just falling. One stone, one story. He's killing everything. This guy goes home. You won't believe what Jesus said to me. He tells a story to his wife. And then later on, she, you know, Jesus is resurrected. She sees his stories and all because he was like, man, I, yeah. And I believe that Jesus tells these, these vivid, living, real, raw stories. So, to, so not just to put people in their place, but to bring people to him face to face and allow them to see the unique beauty and glory that is, that is living and resident within the sun. And so the Lord wants to address my self-righteousness. He just wants to shake my cage. He wants to shake all of our cages just a little bit to say, man, in all of your reading, in all of your getting, get understanding. In all of your, in all of your hearing, would you please have some doing? In all of your, in all of your, 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 your commentaries, would you also have some compassion? Just in every possible place where you're deepening your theology, the depth of the, your theology will be shown in the depth of your love. And I'm not saying that good works is somehow a substitute for good theology. I'm saying that a great vertical relationship with a profound, deep theological understanding of the Lord, if it's really an understanding of the Lord and not just a letter of the law, it should flesh itself out in some good old fashioned daily living. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying where there's a deficit of holiness There's either a failure of follow through or a failure to fully understand the one that I say that I'm following. Every gap of holiness in my life is either. Yes, it's opportunity to read my Bible more, but it's also an opportunity or a call up to to do more of what I've read about. I think that's what God is called constantly calling us to. And so you can be theologically profound and also be practically consistent. And I believe the Lord's calling us to that, to not live in the cozy corner of sound and solid theology without there being profound commitment to follow through. As much as I'd like to make this longer, this is the end. Um, and so I just thank you guys for allowing me to come out here. Uh, and, I'll, and I'm going to read these final texts and then I'm going to pray. Um, so which of these do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise, go and do likewise. I just want to encourage us. I just want to challenge us that um, as quickly as you read a great book, jot down a few things that you're going to do. What you going to do about it? Uh, I remember in my years in corporate America, um, how we would go to these great conferences. We'd just be talking about the world stuff and even they got it. They would say to us, listen, you increase your retention of what we just trained you on by 55 percent by immediately taking action on it the moment you leave here. Like even the world understands that there is this direct connect between learning and then launching out into doing that actually deepens one's understanding. But there's something about us, maybe I think as I don't know if it's as Western learners. No, it's not Western. I can't put that on us as Americans because obviously Jesus pointed it out as a problem even in the East. 
There's something about the human condition that believes that depth of understanding. I said this was over, I promise. Um, (laughs) That depth of understanding somehow equals the number of hours spent studying. But real depth is a combination of hours studied and 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 the number of seconds that it takes to start applying it. So cut down on the delay. And the depth of study should cut down on the delay in action, I hope. Um, Did I pray? Not really? Okay. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for um, um, making your Holy Spirit or sending your Holy Spirit and uh, allowing us to have fresh eyes for uh, an old story. I pray that uh, nothing we've shared is a departure from your intended meeting. And uh, I ask that in every one of us, beginning with me, that there will be a new commitment to taking action, uh, Lord God, on this great and deep theology. Lord God, I pray um, just with a view toward all of the messages that uh, the next time we encounter a storm, that you would indeed, Lord God, shape our theology in a way other than just memorizing messages or remembering messages. I pray, oh God, that... um, um, that we would recognize that there, that every one of us is on the prodigal spectrum and that we must place a fierce premium on fellowship with you or else there's always going to be an element of drift in our lives. I pray, oh God, that even as we look at ourselves and we, be, we try to do some housekeeping uh, to, to live rightly before you, that we would also view these messages evangelistically, that we would be moved with new compassion on the prodigals in our lives. That we'll be new, moved with new commitment and compassion on the Samaritans or excuse me, on the, the pitiful strangers in our lives. That we'll be moved with new evangelistic compassion to share the gospel with those with whom we share storms in our lives. That we wouldn't see people who are frightened by whether it be by COVID. We wouldn't critique them. We'd pray for them. And try to, Lord God, help them through. I pray, oh God, for for whatever our respective fears are, that they would become the new food for focus on you. Lord God, we would we would exchange our fears for new faith. And then at the same time, we would have that new faith become the foundation for sharing our faith and sharing the gospel to other people. Um, Lord God, I just pray for a harvest of new souls at this church. I pray that you would multiply this place. I pray, oh God, that the folks here would have no uh, have no fears about going out and just sharing uh, the just a true and earnestness of the gospel and watch your Holy Spirit work uh, to produce conviction and to even call people into the community of faith. Lord God, um, just allow us to experience the beautiful fruit of what only you can do. Uh, In Jesus name we pray. Amen.